Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Bibliophiles. Adam Andrews with you once again, nominal leader of the Center for Lit crew, uh, the crew which is by my side for this episode in full, in, in its full strength. My wife, Missy. Hi. My daughter, Megan. Hello. My son, Ian. Hey. And his wife, Emily. Hey there. Good to be with you all again. Let's dive right in, shall we? Bibliophiles, episode number, I have no idea. <laughs> Make a guess. What, what episode <laughs> do you think it is? It's a, I think it's episode 49. <laughs> oh, you're not that far off. All right. <laughs> so we're in, the, we're in the high 40s, and today we are gathered to discuss the following topic, the relationship between faith and reason in the great books. The relationship between faith and reason long been a topic of interest to philosophers and theologians. Uh, also, we find in our own experience of the great books of interest to artists as well, literary artists perhaps in particular. But let's get the conversation started with a couple of rhetorical questions. First of all, is reason a reliable path to the knowledge of God? And what evidence do we find of answers to that question in the great books? And then secondly, another way to frame it, is faith a reliable path to the knowledge of the world or the knowledge of things human? How do these two modes of knowing apply to all the categories of things that can be known or that are the subject of one sort of conjecture or another? I just asserted that the great books and literature generally are a place where we can encounter that question. Was that, was that too bold an assertion or is that true in your own experience, Center for Lit Types? Well, I think it's definitely true. Yeah, I can think of a couple examples. Okay. Lay one on us. Uh, I was just trying to pull up Anna Karenina. Oh, yeah. Ooh, Anna Karenina. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. I hadn't really thought of that either. Tolstoy is always on about that. Sort of a preoccupation of his, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Emily, do you have a quote or just want to tell us the general uh, shape of that story that puts you in mind of this question? Um, sure. I don't have a quote because we just moved. Well, no, just as we, we moved and I haven't set up our <laughs> we moved Dare we, I love that. Dare we really years. tell? Okay, it's been a long time, okay. Here we are, English teachers for a living, and we don't have any bookshelves. Well, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's because we're poor, starving English teachers. We're, yeah, we're starving English teachers. Exactly. Speaking of which, feel free to share this episode with your friends. <laughs> so in, in the most general terms, Emily, where in Anna Karenina does this question come up? Well, it's Levin's story. His whole problem throughout the story is that he can't bring himself to believe in God. And this is a major problem because the woman that he's in love with is super devout. And he feels like this is a major problem in his life that he can't bring himself to faith. And he's very methodical and very reasonable in his approach to life. And he sets himself with all of his strength to understand 
faith in God with his mind and mm. basically comes to despair the ability to do that. And it isn't until the end, and I guess this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but he's um, he, he has a son and he's out in the farm and he's watching the beauty of nature and it just all kind of hits him in a moment of inspiration. And he realizes that what he's been trying to do is not this understanding, this faith, this knowledge of God and the meaning of the world, which is what he's ultimately searching for. He can't find that through reason. It's a moment of inspiration. It's, it's seeing love around him. It's something that he acknowledges that he can't understand with his head, mm-hmm. but um, knows to exist anyway. I think the final quote of the book is something along the lines of he, he knows he will never be able to reason why he prays, but he will pray anyway. Yeah, mm. I remember that. It was he has a kind of a supernatural revelation. Right. And it, it's supernatural. I, I use that word guardedly because it comes, like you said, Emily, through the nature. very nature, yeah. Through the common things. Yeah, I, that was beautiful. I loved that story too. So then it would seem that Tolstoy is offering an answer to both of our sort of rhetorical questions. Is reason a reliable path to the knowledge of God? He might be saying no. Correct, Emily? Well, yeah, he's at least implying the frailty of the human mind. Right. What about the other the other formulation of the question? Is faith a reliable path to the knowledge of things human or to the world, knowledge of the world? What's the what's the gist of Tolstoy on that? I don't know. I mean, it's we're led to believe that his gifts for thinking methodically are a gift to to everyone around him, to the people that he has authority over. It's just not where ultimately meaning comes from. I, and I think, also, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking of um, of another Tolstoy character, Pierre Bezhukov from uh, War and Peace. His, his final knowledge, so he's sort of one of the protagonists of that story, right? And his mm-hmm. final knowledge or understanding or useful understanding of the world of men really awaits his conversion. It's not until he is a man of faith right. that he sits in the you know in the final scene surrounded by his family and professes to understand anything about this world. I mean, it, I think you could argue that Tolstoy um, has an answer for both of the, both of these questions. That faith, on the one hand, is a reliable path to the knowledge of the world, and reason may not be a reliable path to the knowledge of God. It seems like from what Emily was talking. Uh, sharing about Anna Karenina um, really does make me think about the fact that his experience with nature and the revelation that he has as he looks on nature and his heart and his mind change, all of a sudden he's able to see the natural world around him um, kind of lit up by faith in such a way that he can enjoy it in a way he's never thoroughly enjoyed it before. There's like a reason behind it that um, changes his interactions with mm-hmm. nature, that it deepens his appreciation of all of the beauty around him. So faith comes through his experience with human beauty, mm. and then it informs that human beauty retrospectively. Mm. And I, I think that yeah, is certainly that true. It doesn't have a reason. Right. Exactly. Uh, Emily, say that again. Well, it's not that the universe doesn't have reason or doesn't have a reason. Uh, it's just that the human mind from Tolstoy's perspective, it isn't set up to grasp that reason. Right. It's there. It's just beyond us. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. I mean, that I think you're right. His his depiction of those characters is a statement about the nature of human reason mm-hmm. as much as anything about human nature and what it is and isn't capable of or how it is and isn't wired. It's very different. The first title that leapt to my mind when you asked that question was Dante's Divine Comedy. I was thinking that too. Because Dante answers that question very differently. I mean, in that work, faith is portrayed as kind of the end of reason, mm-hmm. right? That faith is the only reasonable thing, Yes, according to Dante. Um, that reason itself is the sole portion of a man that is not fallen. And for example, when you go into the Inferno, when you follow uh, Dante into the Inferno, as he meets those shades, you learn that in the Inferno, there are the shades who've lost the good of reason. Yeah. And that is the benefit of reason. They've lived unreasonably. And then he goes on to talk about reasonable living being, um, to order things properly, right? The end goal of reason is that we would learn to love God and to appreciate his gifts instead of loving his gifts and um, forsaking him, right? Loving the, cr- the creature instead of the creator is one of the capital sins there mm-hmm. that, that he brings to light. And reason is supposed to be a means to avoiding that. Mm. The shades didn't heed um, their, their reason. They didn't fall. They didn't live reasonably. And so they end up in hell. The implication being that if they had yes. lived reasonably, then they would have arrived eventually at the knowledge of God. Not only that, but mm-hmm. in the, in the, the journey itself, right? The reason that, um, Dante undertakes this journey, the reason that Beatrice sends Virgil to intercept him and take him on this journey is to essentially reason with him, show him th- by example, basically here, I'm going to introduce you to all of these shades in hell, and then you're going to see the souls in purgatory striving. Um, and you're going to be lessened in this way to live reasonably, to love God appropriately and to order your loves subordinately underneath that love of God. Right. It's, it's uh, an exercise in reason and from Dante's perspective and his depiction of all of these things, man can reason himself to God and should. Ah, so it seems like there's a conversation has been struck then. Mm-hmm. If we put Dante and Tolstoy next to each other, we get slightly different answers I to these questions. Do. Yeah, I think we definitely do. I was reading one of my favorite titles again recently for a uh, lecture that I'm going to be giving in the next few weeks. Um, C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. Uh, We've probably mentioned on Bibliophiles before that it's one of our favorite titles, certainly one of mine and Missy's favorite books to read. Mm -hmm. And um, this book strikes me as a commentary in and of itself on this question of the relationship between faith and reason. The mythical story about a a queen of of an imaginary land, Queen Oriwal, who is um, writing in the first whole section of this story a complaint against the gods of her land, against the, the pagan gods of Gloam as the, as the kingdom where she is the, um, the monarch. And she's writing a complaint against them because they have offended her in a variety of ways, among which they've required that her beautiful sister, whom she loved with all her heart when she was young, be sacrificed on their altar to avert a plague or a drought or a famine. 
and they've stolen her sister away and left her uh, bereft. And uh, she goes off on a basically a lifelong crusade against them, feeling um, put upon and wronged by the gods. And she's so angry about it that she eventually, at the end of her life, writes a complaint against the gods. And it's C.S. Lewis, obviously, if you know me at all, you know, I think he's a wonderful writer. And I think his, his theological um, insights are really poignant and, and profound. But in this particular story, he tells a couple of different facets of Oriol's career. She has all kinds of what I would call theological and pietistic reasons for being angry at the gods of, the, of this world and, uh, or of her land. And, and Lewis gets to make some uh, devotional points about her situation. But on the other hand, she's also making a lot of philosophical statements and claims against the gods. And one of the things that seems clear in this story that she wants is she wants the gods to be uh, rational. Mm-hmm. She wants the gods to be understandable. Her main complaint against the gods is that they hide their faces in darkness and won't be understood. They require things without reason. They, they dispense blessings and cursings without any rational relationship to the activities of the people that they dispense them to. And at one point, just in her frustration, she says, and she's, you could tell she's just through gritted teeth. She says, why must holy places always be dark places? As if to say, why won't the gods show themselves. In fact, in, in one super dramatic scene where she's arguing with her sister, she says, how dare, no, see, how can you believe in a God that dare not show his face? Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the complaint of reason against faith is kind of personified in this queen of gloam. She almost is, is arguing or um, raging against the immaterial a little bit of the, go- of the gods, a little bit. She, she, she's not, she doesn't doubt that there are gods, but she, she demands that they be rational, that they be reasonable, that in the, in the words of our rhetorical question, that they be approachable by the workings of the mind. That they be like men. Yeah, kind of. And, and one of the things that Lewis does in this story that seems to me so, so powerful and profound is he brings Queen Oriwal to the end of herself and she gets in, in this dramatic moment, she has a chance to read her complaint out against the gods. And she starts, alert. she starts reading it and she starts reading it and she starts reading it. And she um, wonders why it's taking so long. It's in a kind of a dreamlike scene. She wonders why this complaint is taking so long. And she looks down at the scroll in her hand and she realizes that she's reading the same thing over and over and over again. And when she, ex- when she examines it a little bit more closely, she realizes that it doesn't make any sense. It's just a lot of vile um, uh, scribbling. It's a lot of vile invective against the gods. It's basically just a little screed of hatred. Mm-hmm. Words, words, and more words. But it doesn't really make a point. Mm-hmm. In other words, her complaint against the gods is fundamentally irrational. Mm-hmm. And so the god speaks to her at this climactic moment and says, are you answered? And she says, I am answered. Yeah, and the and very, if the very but, but, first words of the next chapter. No, 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 no. You can't give that away okay. because I was going to say something first. We, we get to the end of this chapter and we, we realize that along the way, we've been asking Oriwal's question with her. Mm-hmm. Why won't the gods show their faces? Why won't they deal rationally with us? Why can't we understand how they work? 
we have this question too. Mm -hmm. And she finally gets to the end and she makes her complaint and she looks down, her complaint is nonsense. And the God says, are you answered? And she says, yes. And I, when I read that first, I thought, no, she isn't. Really? They, they still haven't answered. Oh, I totally, I was answered with her. Oh, I wasn't. Cause I wanted the gods to explain themselves. Well, the answer comes in the very first sentence of the next chapter. Now you can say what she, she begins the, or he begins the next chapter with the question itself was the answer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What, Not right. By which what you mean what? About? Well, that in the reading, in the asking of the question, and as she was forced to say it out loud, to ask it out loud, and to see um, her vile scribbling, mm -hmm. the nature of the question, um, she saw her own hubris. Well, in other words, it's an illegitimate question. It's an illegitimate question. But that doesn't satisfy me. What I want is I want to know that the gods are... Um, are understandable. I want the answer to this first question. Um, is reason a reliable path to the knowledge of God to be yes, if you have the right attitude. And I think that's what Dante's on about, right? Yes. If course. you have the right attitude about reason, it is a reliable path to the knowledge of God. It's the light that leads you to Christ. Right. According but, to Dante. But what Lewis is suggesting in till we have faces is that that's not true. Even with the right attitude, they don't give that answer. The gods don't say to Oriwal, if you just have the right attitude, everything would have been clear. We actually do make sense. Well, it seems the question you're getting at, someone stated earlier, it seems to center around whether or not the reason escaped the fall. Right. Mm -hmm. Or yeah. whether it was a product of it. So, so explain that a little bit, Emily. I'm not quite following you. Uh, uh, well, you were saying, I think when we were talking about Dante, some or mom said that Dante believed that the reason was the part of man that was unfallen and that was the spark it's the spark of the divine in man and as such it isn't affected by the fallen nature mm. of humanity mm -hmm. um and the way that you answer that question whether it is or isn't seems to from what you're saying affect everything else about the way you go about understanding reason yeah yeah i, li I like what you say that the that the the reason in man is the spark of the divine i mean i think if you ask nine out of ten people um, who had a theistic worldview, what is the, uh, in what does the image of God in man consist? Nine out of 10 people would say reason. Right. I think nine out of 10 would. Would you agree? I agree with you. Nine out of 10 people would say reason. I don't know if that, 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 that is true, but that was my first response. Well, I wonder if you asked me that question. <laughs> right. I mean, I've been thinking about this for a few weeks and I, um, as I'm reading till we have faces, which obviously isn't the last word on this subject, right? It's just one contribution to the conversation by a single author. But what he seems to suggest in the career of this queen of Gloam is that reason is not the image of God in man. Reason is the image of man that he projects upon God and then demands that God live up to it. So in a way, um, it is when we say that reason is the image of God in man, we kind of make that up. We make an, a very large assumption and then go on to recast God in our image. That's what Lewis is suggesting. Which is sort of idolatry. Yes, I think so. That's what he's suggesting. He's suggesting that the, that the, the fallen uh, impulse in man is to imagine God through the reason as a bigger, better, more powerful, more perfect man with all of the human qualities that make man, man, just in a, in a better form, in a stronger form, that God is really Superman. And that then man has the 
uh, the authority or the prerogative to demand that God be understandable, to demand that God be essentially human because they've created him with this spark of the human, which is reason in him. Okay, so not to be a gadfly or anything, but what about the verse in Isaiah that says, come, let us reason together, saith the Lord? What about that? Oh, I think that's a great passage because, I mean, and, and you suggested this to me recently when I said, I don't think, I, when, when Genesis tells us that God created man in his image, I asked you what that meant and you said, well, reason. And then I thought, well, how do we know that? It doesn't say that in Genesis. Right. And so you pointed me to that passage in Isaiah, come let us reason together. But, but what comes after that? I'll read it. It says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Ah, yes. So God says to his people, come let us reason together. And then he says something completely irrational. Totally unreasonable. Completely unreasonable. <laughs> I right? love that. The, the, the sinner shall be innocent. Well, that makes a lot of sense. That is all of the, that is essentially rational where things are in proportion to one another, right? That's completely understandable. No, actually it isn't. It's completely irrational. It's completely unreasonable. It makes no sense whatsoever. I think it's a pun. You think it's a pun? Yeah. <laughs> it's a deep irony. Interesting. I don't know. Emily, go ahead. What well, do you have first Corinthians on your, on your list? Right now, lay it lay it on me. Well, I I obviously this is the obvious one. Obviously, obviously. <laughs> See how many more times that we that can say? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> that seems clear. <laughs> Get it? Um, but it, I thought it was interesting because that was our. Uh, that's what the sermon came from this week, and so I have it in front of me. But I assume that you did too. No, what go ahead. It? Um, it's the first chapter of first Corinthians and it is verse 18 and it says for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are uh, being saved, it is the power of God for it is written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Ah, beautiful. Beautiful. I think this... this um obviously that encapsulates the the gist of what I think is going on in Lewis's book till we have faces that I'm that I'm sort of deep into right now that there's there's a disconnect between the life of faith and the life of reason mm -hmm. and that what the what Oriol wants is she wants the 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 wisdom of the Greeks and the things that are mentioned in the first list in 1 Corinthians there she wants certain rational knowledge of a proportional reasonable approachable god and she finds in the end the stumbling block that Paul describes. Mm -hmm. um, she finds that she's, she's going to be doomed to disappointment because she's literally striving after a, a fantasy. Except she ends up anything but disappointed. I mean, I was thinking about the philosopher, um, the, the teacher, the fox in that particular story. You haven't really mentioned him, but it seems like 
he's somebody worth talking about if we're talking about reason and its significance in knowing the world appropriately and reason's relationship to God or in, in that particular work of fiction. Yeah. The well, gods. Yeah. He's a, he's a philosopher who's her, her, um, tutor when she's a child. And he, uh, he talks about the, the gods of sacrifice and atonement that exist in this imaginary land being poet, the fancies of poets, the lies right. of poets. Right. And he says, and instead he says, the divine nature has no jealousy. And he, he talks about God as the divine nature that is eminently fair and rational and reasonable. Mm-hmm. And he's a God. If there is one, the divine nature is a God of sense and proportion of dessert and due, mm-hmm. of wages paid and accounts settled. Right. And this is the God that Oriol wants. Mm-hmm. This is the God that she, this is the image of God that she demands. And what she finds in this story is there are no such gods. Mm-hmm. There are gods. All right but they are not gods of wages paid and accounts settled of just and due and proportion to find something else entirely, something completely unreasonable. I think it's interesting that in that minute, again, with the spoiler alert, but in that moment where she reads that little scrap of vile paper, you know, the vile words off of that little scrap of paper mm-hmm. over and over again, and she comes to herself and realizes what she's been saying and is answered. Her first response is to throw herself off a parapet to try to kill herself. Right. And instead, you know, she, she's caught by the fox who's there in the, the crowd of spectators mm-hmm. and he's laughing. And he's laughing because he was wrong. Right. He says, we may have been wrong about the lies of poets. Yeah, I was all, I got it all wrong. And she's like, what about justice? And he said, whatever you ask for, be glad that you're not going to get what is just, what you're due What is, is rational. Yeah, what is rational. Yeah. Right? Thank God that it's not rational. Yeah. Or we'd all be doomed. Yeah. And he's just joyous as he shows her the way things really are and functions in his role as her tutor, finally, properly for the first time. Yes. By oh, saying, so moving. oh man, I taught you all wrong. Look at this is the way it really is. It's fabulous. Yeah. Well, it's a powerful statement of one side of this question for sure. Mm-hmm. And and in it that I think something else is really worth contemplating, which is that the question that pops up in this conversation, wait a minute, if the, if the image of God in man is not reason, then what is it? If it's true, what Lewis is suggesting, that when we talk about God being a God of reason, we're actually creating a God in our own image and taking human reason and blowing it up to divine proportions, then there must be something else in which the divine image in man consists. And Lewis makes a, a strong case about what that is, and he says that it's love. It's <laughs> irrational, um, gracious, gracious, undeserved mercy, mercy and love. That God is not God because he's a thinker. He is essentially a lover. And and that and that the man, the divine image in man, is the capacity for um, unconditional agape love, as the New Testament puts it. I think you can really okay, make but- a strong case for that because, um, I'm sorry, Emily, I'll, I'll shut up in just a second. <laughs> you can make a really strong case for that um, when, when you think about the fact that Jesus actually was God condescending to give man what he thought he wanted, 
right? To, well, to give man what he really needed. He condescended to, if, if man was in demanding that God be reasonable, kind of making God in his own image, God responds and says, sure. And he condescends to become a man, right? To become a child in a manger and to, to, you know, breathe the air and do all the stuff that man do. So then Jesus is the God man. Have I said enough? Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. I mean, he kind of, when you look at the scriptures and you see Jesus, um, he's got a point. Right. Right. He's got a point. If Jesus is the image, the, the most perfect image of um, God in his humanity, then when I think of Jesus, when I read the stories of Jesus, it's not his reasonableness that stands out, although he certainly was reasonable. There's not a whole lot of evidence for it. It's not a subject that comes up. Well, I... It's not that he spoke about reason, but he certainly used reason and all of the parables and his employment of them in um, talking to the people around him. Hmm. I suppose. I mean, I mean, that. I mean, he, but he, that's except... not the thing that really stands out no, about Jesus. I don't Jesus. think it is I think either. What you're saying about um, his his love, right? His um, immoderate pouring out of himself uh, for the sins of the world. His his love in laying his life down is the thing that that marks him. Yeah, agreed. And sets him apart. Agreed. Agreed. Emily, you had an objection. Well, I don't know if it's an objection. I'm just wondering, because it is true that human beings are the only ones who have been given the gift of reason. And so it is something that sets us apart from everyone else. From the other beasts. And so surely there is a role for it. Yeah, I... I um. Well, go, keeping our conversation within the realm of talking about the great books, I would say that that Lewis, until we have faces, suggests something similar to what Tolstoy seems to be on about in Anna Karenina, or in, in War and Peace more specifically, that it's the eye of faith that can actually see the world of men clearly. Because Oriwal, in this story that I'm um, reading deeply right this minute, misunderstands literally everything about her relationships, about her place in the world, about her future, about her situation, until she's given the gift of unconditional love and mercy, until she's acted upon by God and sees the world through the eye of faith. And that doesn't happen until she, in that moment, sees herself, you know? First, she has to, quote unquote, get a face. That is, she has to come to know that she is not like God. Yeah. And one and of the great, not like her. And one of the great pictures in this novel, she's, um, she's born ugly and her, her daughter is the most beautiful, uh, girl in the whole kingdom, but she's hideously ugly. And in one of the, um, her daughter, you mean her sister? Uh, it's not her daughter, her sister, my fault. In one of her, um, arguments with the God, she decides to veil her face and to go about hidden. And it's a kind of a, a physical image of her refusal to meet the gods on their own terms, her, her continued demand that they be accessible to her and understandable by her. And so she goes around physically veiled and also persists in ignorance of her true situation. Mm -hmm. And at one point she says, how can the gods meet us face to face until we have faces, Mm -hmm. which is the line that the title of the book comes from, by which she means until we understand our own selves, until we see ourselves in our rebellion and in our demand that God be in our own image, then we can't treat with him face to face. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of um, another novel, Melville's Moby Dick. 
Yeah. Where there's a similar character, there's Ahab, right? right? Who is very angry with God because he feels that God hides from him, much like Oriole feels like the gods hide from her, mm-hmm. behind this pasteboard mask that is um, nature, and in particular, the whale that um, that took his leg, right? right? Um, he wants to peel back the pasteboard mask and peer behind it to treat with God, and he's demanding that God come and defend himself, basically, for the way that he conducts his relationship with the world and with man for the orientation that, that mm-hmm. he takes towards the world. And um, I think that's very similar. Yeah, it's I think a, so too. a very similar kind of situation yep. there. He knows he's dealing with somebody fundamentally irrational. Yes. And there's a, a pivotal scene where um, he's out at night and there's lightning and um, uh, St. Elmo's fire, right? All of those lights that are peculiar out on ships at night. And he's basically making of his ship and himself a lightning rod mm-hmm. in order to try to draw God, force God to treat with him. And I, I wonder if that's not an answer to the question of why did God give man reason then? Um, the reasonable impulse in man, I think, is like a cattle prod that urges him to um, entreat God to reveal himself. Yeah. And the result of it, when it's, it's earnestly earnestly followed, that impulse is earnestly followed, is inevitably that we come to um, know ourselves, right? Or go down with a ship, <laughs> one or the other. Yeah. And for Ahab, you know, um, he's a hard case and he, he ends up going down with a ship. Um, but really, I mean, he, he goes down with a whale. So it, it's, neb- it's a nebulous ending, mm-hmm. you know? Interesting. That... Um... I think that the example of Moby Dick brings up uh, Emily's point a minute ago that it's it would be well to define the terms, uh, uh, really give a definition of reason in the point that I'm sort of trying to make. And I think it's capable of at least two related definitions, one being the ability of the human mind, however it comes by the knowledge of God, to arrive at it. That'd be one definition of reason, the ability of the human mind to... To comprehend Comprehend God. God. But, but the second one would be um, the, um, the making sense, that something is reasonable and rational if it, if it has logical sense and proportion and results correspond with, with uh, causes and things are, are uh, understandable to a human mind. You mean natural results correspond to natural causes. Yeah, so, so, that, so that Queen Oriwal can look at the, at the works of the gods and say, ah, yes. It all balances. It's fair mm-hmm. or it's understandable some way. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it strikes me that, that um, on either one of those definitions of reason, Lewis is suggesting that there are no such gods, that mm. the God you get is... Um, God be praised a lot better than that, than the one you're looking for. Yeah, I think his because of being is, uncreated is way more um, satisfying than Melville's. Although I, I will say that Melville seems to be saying we won't comprehend God, but God may comprehend us. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was just thinking about what you were saying a second ago, Mom, about reason being sort of a lightning rod, um, and in the context of what reason is good for. And it, 
makes me think of the parables. Um, we brought up Jesus a second ago and the, que- the question of whether he was reasonable. And if you read the parables closely, they're not fables. No, um, they're not true. understandable, formulaic admonishments in one direction or another. In fact, most of them are set up culturally to be statements of some sort of foolishness mm-hmm. or other. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, they're intended to confound people, not illuminate their reason. Yes. So it just strikes me that that plays into the question that we're talking about. God made man himself came down to did something different with reason and the questions that reason asks other than answer them. Mm-hmm. It's almost like he redirects man's reason mm-hmm. to a different end. Mm-hmm. Which makes me wonder if, if reason should be defined not necessarily by the answers that it leads us to. I mean, that's, that's essentially what you were saying, dad, right? Reasonable reason is the ability to perceive reasonable ends of reasonable things. Um, But maybe it's just the fact that we're self-conscious. I mean, maybe reason comes down to self-consciousness and that in that sense, it's useful because we see ourselves and instinctively set ourselves against a prime mover. We set ourselves yeah. against a God because we are we are conscious of ourselves and conscious that we didn't bring all of these things about. Right. Um, right. But I don't. I think to say that is different than to say that we're capable of reasoning our way to that God. But maybe at the very least, reason enables us to notice the fact that He exists. Yeah. Uh, obviously, some sort of uh, mental brain activity is involved very often, and I wouldn't want to say that that, that Lewis is arguing against that. Oriwal and indeed Lewis himself were very articulate people and they're very coherent in their, um, in the cases that they're making and the arguments that they're making both before and after their quote unquote conversions. So that's not, I don't think that's the game he's after, but something about the nature of God and the relationship between man and God, um, doesn't make sense. It doesn't conform to the rules of, of philosophy. The Fox, when he says, the divine nature is without jealousy could have just as well said a bunch of other things from Greek philosophy. There's virtue in moderation, for example. Hmm. Um, it's the most non-Christian thing you could possibly say. What is moderate about the love of God in Christ? Mm-hmm. It is completely yeah, immoderate. Right. It is, it is extreme in the extreme. Well, anyway, that's what, I think that's the point that Lewis tries to make in till we have faces, which is, um, something of a difficult book, but a, but really a really profound one, Very and rewarding. it seems like it would fit nicely into a conversation. I mean, I'd love to see Dante and Melville and Tolstoy and Lewis in the same room talking about this subject. Me too. I, Lewis is on about that, not just in that book, but in other books that he wrote, like for example, in The Great Divorce. Yeah, remember the character in The Great Divorce that is the theologian, right? Who loves to talk and reason about theological principles and truth, but can't ever close on any of them. Mm -hmm. A most unreasonable man Mm -hmm. in that regard. You know, I think Lewis, um, you know, in, in the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, he asks through the professor, um, logic, don't they teach these kids anything in school? Lewis is a very logical, very rational, very reasonable sort of man. So I can imagine him spending a lot of time thinking about this particular question, the relationship of reason and faith. Yes. And you can hear him working it out until we have faces in particular. Yeah. I think it's interesting. uh, Once you latch onto this particular question, this may be true of a lot of the big, you know, eternal theme type questions, but you find that the great writers have the capacity to carry on more than one eternal argument at the same time. Mm-hmm. You find Shakespeare doing this in various of his plays. Just pick any great writer. Nathaniel Hawthorne is doing it in The Scarlet Letter. Fitzgerald is doing it in The Great Gatsby. 
that it's one of the questions that keeps one coming of the up. Questions, one of yeah. the universals. Yeah. Well, I feel like I've hogged the stage today. I apologize. No, no that was fascinating. Was awesome. Thank you. Um, any other comments for the good of the order before we adjourn this edition of Bibliophiles? Oh, hearing none, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you for uh, thank you for joining us, everyone. Those of you who tuned in, we appreciate your attention. Appreciate also you rating the podcast if you get a chance and checking out the other episodes in the series on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also swing by the web at centerforlit.com and see what else we're up to for readers, teachers, and thinkers of all stripes. Uh, it's been great as usual. Can't wait for another episode and we'll get to work on that directly. But until we meet again, my friends, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>